Welcome to the Do Hog Digest, the podcast for all things Loris College. In this episode, we will share stories with former Loris faculty member, Dr. Donna Bowerly. I'm Robert Waterbury, Assistant Director of Campus Communications, and I'm joined once again by my co-host, Bobby Earle, Director of Alumni Communications. How are you doing today? Hello, Robert. Great to be on the call, and especially it's a treat to have Dr. Donna Bowerly with us. Yeah, we're both excited. So let's get going. So, Dr. Bowerly, welcome to the Dewhawk Digest. It's okay to call me Donna. Oh, thank you, Donna. <laughs> you you are a, a true uh, inspiration to so many people, and and really, you carved out a path for so many women who followed you. Um, but I love to start our conversation at the beginning. Talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you ended up at Loris. Okay, will do. Um, actually, I was born at Mercy Hospital, but we lived in Potosi, Wisconsin at that time because my dad was the CPA for the Potosi Brewing Company and also worked for Brooks and O'Connor in Dubuque. But unfortunately, my dad, who had osteomyelitis, died when I was just 18 months old. He was 36 years old, and he died in the President Hotel in Waterloo. So my mother had to move back home to live with her mother, and that's how I wound up across from Holy Trinity Church and school, which began my wonderful education with uh, Franciscan nuns. That was a laboratory school, so the best teachers were there, and I had a marvelous education at Holy Trinity and uh, times at the parish as well. Then from there, I went to Macca Conception Academy, and I always was taught by Franciscans, and when I was in high school, I decided that I wanted to, for a strange reason recently, um, my brother and my sister gave my mom a lot of grief, and I decided that I never wanted to do that to her, so I decided the best place for me to be a good person was to go be like the Franciscan sisters. So I went to the convent for 15 years and taught wow. in a wide variety of places, and I left in 1967, the year before Martin Luther King was killed, went to Oklahoma City. Okay, from there... I got a wonderful opportunity from Lyndon Baines Johnson, who decided to give National Defense Education Association grants to people in the humanities. Right now, there's still a big push for math and science, and we could use another push for the humanities as well. But anyway, I got this fellow, wonderful fellowship. I had already gone two summers to Marquette, but that's where I was allowed to get my master's and my doctorate without owing a, a penny of debt, which is a marvel for today's students. I Absolutely. always put it in perspective. And I only wanted to return to Dubuque because of my mother, because she had lived a really, really hard life. And I thought I could make it easier for her. So I only applied at Clark, Loris, and the University of Dubuque when I was in my final year of studies at Marquette. And I wanted Loris and this sounds strange, but I have a good reason. I wanted Loris because of its master's program, mm -hmm. not because I was being a little bit snooty and thinking that I could only teach graduate students, but I thought it would make me a better teacher 
for research and background all around if I was challenged to teach graduate students as well. So I was hoping I would get Loris, and I knew Loris from grade school days because sometimes we walked, imagine this, from Holy Trinity School all the way to Loris College up uh -huh. Loris Boulevard for plays that were put on by, of all people, Father Schrader already. And I remember some of those plays. So we made hikes from Holy Trinity School, or we went from Immaculate Conception Academy there. It was, was marvelous. So I was well familiar with Loris College in a sure. variety of ways. And so I was so happy when I got an invitation by Dr. Frank Lehner, my beloved chairperson, mm -hmm. to um, become an instructor at Loris College. Mm -hmm. And originally I was hired in the basics program, and I hated that word and was glad to get out of that program. I also taught in the talent salvage program, which was another strange name for a program, <laughs> which meant students who had a lot of ability, but not very much oomph, you know, so I was there to provide the oomph. And I did more probably for that talent salvage program than the person who was running it. And that's often the way it goes. I'm the big dedicated person and I often just take over. Oh, so yes. that was my beginning at as an instructor in 1971, and then I moved up the ranks until I became the first woman professor at Loris College, and I'm to this day I am proud of that because Loris College proud. is the when Loris College is the oldest college, if I'm correct, the oldest Catholic college west of the Mississippi. And so to be the first woman professor at Loris, I have many funny stories, and I can tell some if you want me to, <laughs> about being with that first class of women who went to Loris College. That was a landmark, that's for sure. That was 1971. I was going to say. How's that for a quick rundown? That's a very good rundown <laughs> and very succinct, Donna. So thank you for that that kind of look back in time. and. Really, you pointed it out. You arrived at Loris in 1971, the same time that women were entering campus. In a way, it was just you know perfect timing for you to be there, to be that first female, that role model, that person that other students would see on campus. But you took it even beyond that. While you were at Loris, you were developing curriculum that today still stands. And over time, I know you had mentioned you've, you've created a number of unique courses, uh, different interdisciplinary classes that were taught. If you can, maybe look back and reflect on some of those courses that you're proud of. Well, you know, eventually Laura started doing these um, team taught courses, mm -hmm. but a long time ago, and it began with Dr. Ted Cruz, who was a marvelous forward-looking professor and he was teaching an honors class and he asked me to be part of it and in that class we were studying Sartre who said um, um, it was a question it was a statement on being and nothingness and that so caught my attention that I thought I bet I could do a course on nothingness so that was my first what I called quest courses mm -hmm. now all the professors who ultimately joined I think I did about four or five of those quest courses all of those professors volunteered their time I met with a variety of professors like on the question of nothing 
Think of black holes. Mm -hmm. Think of John Cage and his music. Mm -hmm. Think of um, the Black Knight of the Soul. And I thought of Edgar Allan Poe, the descent into the maelstrom, that was a zero math, the actually concept of zero. So I had teachers from all these disciplines who said, yes, they would be a part of that class. Mm -hmm. Then they decided if they wanted to teach one or two classes and they could come to other classes, okay, if they so desired. Mm -hmm. And this was an honors program. Only 20 honors students were allowed to enroll, so we kept the enrollment small. Mm -hmm. And it was truly exciting. This was long before anybody ever thought of this. And in fact, I gave two presentations on this kind of multidisciplinary teaching When I was a member of the International Alliance of Teacher Scholars, Mm -hmm. I gave one program for the Texas A&M and another one out in New Hampshire at the University of New Hampshire. So because of belonging to that International Alliance of Teacher Scholars, I got to tell other universities far and wide about what Loris was doing, except all the professors there worked mostly at state institutions, and they said, We could never have this at our college. (laughs) And I said, why not? And they said, because nobody would allow us to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, see, it takes a college to allow you to be creative. That's an interesting concept, isn't it? Yes. They have to be able to stand aside and let you do your thing. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And and that was one thing, too, that you always kind of took the bull by the horns and you never shied away from a challenge or something that, as you mentioned, uh, caught your attention and made you think more deeply. You, you truly are an example of a lifelong learner, and you modeled that in a way that students who took your classes or who were English majors embraced that and really had an impact on their lives. How did the students have an impact on your life, Donna? Well, I always come back to why I went to Loris College, and I've said this in many interviews and many different places that were published, that I was always a teacher I was a, and a student. I loved my uh, elementary education, my high school education, everywhere that I went. And so when I became a teacher, I never forgot that I was a student and kept learning. So Mm -hmm. the students often inspired me. Loris College still has outstanding, excellent schools and always did. And I always hope that it would keep progressing that way. It's a tough time for any private institutions right now, private Mm -hmm. colleges. I have a wonderful story of someone who was deeply impacted by you. A few months ago, we interviewed Liz Cruzy, Liz Ellsburn Cruzy, who wrote a book. <laughs> and she oftentimes will say how much you meant to her when she was a student at Loris and the positive influence that you've had on her and the writing that she continues to do today because of that interaction she had with you. She wrote a children's book, if I remember correctly. She did. She did. And we featured it on a podcast. So she is definitely Great. following in your, in your footsteps. I stay in touch with many alumni, and Liz is one of them. Yeah. 
and her and her husband, whom I know very well, and her lovely children, and uh, which I had a lovely lunch down at Caroline's with her and her kids. So we chose the big booth in the back where we'd be a, away from all other people. <laughs> you know, kids at a restaurant. That's right. That's exactly right. You know, Donna, when you arrived in the early <clears throat> 70s, as you mentioned, uh, you were kind of breaking new ground. There, women were arriving on <laughs> campus. You were now a professor on campus. How did you see campus then? And then fast forward 35 plus years later when you retired and left in 2007, the changes. Talk about the changes that you saw from 1971 to 2007. <laughs> this is where there are some funny stories you may have to edit, but I'll keep everything very anonymous. Okay, first of all, the big change is there are women restrooms now. There really? were none when I came. No, every, okay, here's one. I was teaching in Kane Hall. <clears throat> I walked up to first floor and there was a bathroom and it said faculty restroom. So I walked in and there was a priest at the urinal. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, so I quickly exited. <laughs> Had to try to find at least a girl's restroom it would have been labeled at that time. And that's another whole story about girls and boys and when does a girl become a woman and when does a boy become a man? That's another whole trajectory there. Okay, so I found out later that in about five minutes, a paper sign went up, men's faculty restroom. <laughs> so there would be no confusion in the, in the future. Right. Okay. Yeah. When I went to my first faculty meeting in the science hall, I went to every floor looking for a woman's restroom and there were none. So finally I asked, because the meeting was about to start, I said, where is the women's restroom? And he said, you have to go out in the lobby. And that oh. was true. Wow. There was not one floor that had a woman's restroom. Plus one of the first letters that went out to all the students the year that women came, the letter said specifically, be sure to bring your shorts for gym. Really? Women, shorts. What do you wear for a top? You don't right. have to worry if you're a guy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it was little things like that. Plus, the women that I had in my American literature classes or whatever, the first students always covered, if they were taking calculus, they put brown paper covers on those books. They also covered their organic chemistry books. You know why? They didn't want people to know what classes they were taking. They didn't want boys to know they were smart. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay? You got to contend with stuff like that. And women students in organic chemistry, taught by the wonderful Dr. Kenny Krause, whom everybody called Kenny. Yes were scared to death they would be shivering with tremors in my classroom thinking about going to organic chemistry that actually toned down as soon as more and more women came onto the campus okay sometimes they were the only young woman in a classroom okay mm -hmm. and that was very hard and oh, there were all kinds of other things, you know, but it's the little stuff that stays with you, like not being able to find a bathroom when you need one, okay? Or <laughs> that what would do I wear for that your gym shorts, okay? That would definitely stick with me. You're well, right. And it's, it, yes. sounds little, okay. it sounds a little until you really need the bathroom, and it's not so little anymore, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Anyway, things gradually changed as women. Now, there still are very few women engineers. That's a tough um, career to get into for women. I think it still is today. Mm-hmm. And I always advised anybody, I would always try to get people to double major in English because if you can read Henry James and Emily Dickinson, you know, mm-hmm. you can read just about anything. That's right. So I always encourage them. I said, you're going to be reading real literature in these classes. In other classes, you may be reading about psychology and maybe not reading actual psychologists or whatever. Or in business or in education, you may be reading about educators, but you may not be reading real educators who really wrote marvelous books. So that's what I would say. In English, it's always firsthand. The writers that you are reading are famous and excellent writers, and they will challenge you. And, you know, when Jim Collins often tells me when he goes up, maybe this is something you were going to say, because if you ask Jim about me, this is what he would tell you, as he often tells me. Um, when I ask students who their favorite teacher was, he said, your name often comes up. Mm-hmm. And I said, sometimes I might say, well, what do they say? And he says, she was tough but fair. Mm-hmm. Okay, now that was typically what students would say about me, tough, but fair. After all, we're in college, things should be tough. But as long as a teacher is fair, and that's true today, think of policing today, as long as police people are fair, you can take stuff better. When they're not fair, and the same thing goes in the classroom today as it was when I came. I never... I was raised on the wrong side of the tracks, you could say, too. We were very poor. When Dad died, Mom made minimum wage for 33 years. So I knew what it was to get a basket from the Knights of Columbus at Christmas. And there were other things for women for her that I took in as a child. I watched how she struggled and how she survived and how she raised our family in the midst of many struggles. That gave me strength. The nuns were tough on me, too. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that was good. So, and Frank Lehner at Loris was tough on me. But you know, one year, not to my knowledge, he gave me his increase in salary. He went oh. to Michael Dowd. You remember the great Michael Dowd? Yes. He went to him and he said, "Give her my salary." That's because I was, I was hired as an instructor with a pitifully low salary. Mm-hmm. I remember saying. Can't you afford any more? And I still remember, I think it was Bert McQuillan at that point looking me right in the eye. I know we can't afford any more. So they gave a man who came the same year as I a higher salary because he was a man and married. Ah. He told me he told me that later on. And then the faculty senate raised my wages twice because if you're hired at a very low salary, you never catch up. Right. Exactly. And that's a very important thing. So that's true of many staff people. I do know this for a fact that it took a long time for staff to get a raise. Mm -hmm. A long time. Mm -hmm. I'm very protective of staff as well as faculty and always have been. And fight for whatever can be afforded. Please, please do it. Right, right. I was going to say, you, you've always been wonderful about balancing both sides, but challenging people, whether it is your contemporaries or your students, and always being inclusive, as you mentioned, with faculty and staff and bringing those two groups together. Yes. Walk through 
your leading up to becoming the first female faculty chair? Oh, that's quite a story. First of all, <laughs> when I ran both times, the men dropped out toward the end. <laughs> <laughs> they saw what was coming. Yes, and there have only been two faculty women, I think, who have been chairs. And to be elected by your colleagues at what was previously an all-male college was, for me, a, a different kind of affirmation. You, you talked a lot about the evolution of Loris in terms of having women, you joining the faculty. As you look back on your 35-plus years at Loris, what do you see that maybe remains? Thirty-six. This? I only got it. I only got a button for thirty-five because they didn't give it to you until you hit it. Yes, I know. It's actually thirty-six years. When I my last button says thirty-five. Oh uh, well, that's why I said plus because I knew it wasn't thirty-five. It's thirty-six. So yeah, it is. Rec recognizing those thirty-six years that you had at Lourdes <laughs> and all those great memories. What are the the thread what's the thread that connects those years together and as you look back what do you embrace and see as the still the solid foundation that makes Loris what it is for me it was the love of teaching and I still say the teaching faculty is the bedrock of Loris College and what brings students it, it may not be what brings students Maybe being on some sports team is what brings you to Loris, but you're not there long and you soon recognize that it is the strength of the teaching faculty, their depth of knowledge, their willingness to sit down with you individually and treat you as a person. Mm -hmm. I used to keep... Um, on the chalk ledge, I always had a sign-up sheet for conferences. We were required to have 10 hours of conferences every week, and we could design what place. And I always chose places that were close to where the students were, mm -hmm. either in my classroom before classes, in the library sometimes, often in my office. And students could sign up for 20-minute periods. If they wanted two 20-minute periods, they'd get them. Now, when I was in my office, I often saw people in their offices all up and down my corridor, and that configuration changed. For a while, Larry Wheeler, the great philosophy professor, was across from me. I made my first um, attachments to faculty with the business faculty who were at the other end of the corridor. Okay, mm -hmm. so with Joe Bernardi and with David Puff, Bernardi is still my financial advisor. So <laughs> we make strong relationships at Loris with students, but it's the teaching faculty, and this is not putting down staff or administration, the teaching faculty holds students there and are part of the longest and strongest memories. That's what I believe. I and I always wanted to be a teacher, not an administrator. Sometimes an administrator, I really riled a lot of people because I expected everybody to work as hard as I did. And I soon found out that people don't, are not wired that way. Well, getting people riled up is not a bad thing, Donna. It challenges all of us to reflect on what we're thinking, what we believe in, and what we want to accomplish. And even beyond the campus border, you were always a teacher, you were always a mentor, you were always a confidant and a colleague, but you were also a great servant leader in our community. You were involved with places like Stonehill Care Center, 
you helped with fundraising, you helped and volunteered on numerous boards, and most notably the Dubuque Community School Board. You were a board member there. The impact that you had beyond Lores too into the educational field and nonprofit world is remarkable. What prompted you to really delve in and become part of the community? Would you believe it's canaries? Canaries? You'll have to explain that one. <laughs> <laughs> I never knew that canaries ate lettuce, but my grandmother had a big garden, of which I was a big part. Okay, so I was the person who took lettuce to all the people in our neighborhood who had canaries in exchange for lard to bring back to my grandmother so she could make soap. Okay, okay. so I learned as a child to be a giver to our neighborhood. <laughs> and then the nuns at Holy Trinity taught me how to be outgoing. I used to run the school library in the summer from one of the side doors with books donated by the public library. Mm -hmm. So I was always somebody who looked for a community outside myself. Then how I got on the Dubuque Community School Board is because of Jim and Julie Maddox. They asked me, would I consider running for the school board? I'd never given it a thought. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when I sat and thought about it, I thought, okay, I will. And I found very good people to work with me. Um, uh, sometimes names, uh, I'm trying to think of the name who was my first guy who helped me raise money. Mm -hmm. But you know, running for the school board, I did five times and I served 13 years. Now wow. that's a totally different thing because you are running, you are asking the citizens of Dubuque mm -hmm. to support you and you've got to appear before the TH board and you've got to appear before the school teachers, um, people who gather, you've got to appear in many places and present yourself. Mm -hmm. And so you have to deeply think about what, it, what do you have to give? That's right. These last days when I've been retired, I keep asking myself, because I'm not doing as much service as I did all my life. I spent the last, the years of 216 to 219 as a volunteer teacher at Table Mound, which I truly loved. I taught fifth grade classes, two classes there, Newberry Award books, and I love teaching true literature, and that's what these books were with all kinds of life lessons. And I miss that teaching. I miss that wearing of my, all my school clothes again. You know, I have a closet <laughs> full of school clothes and I still haven't given those up in, just in case. Right. Who knows, maybe I'll still be teaching again. My career at this point is 66 years of teaching. Wow. When I was at Marquette and going to classes, I was not allowed to work for pay, but that didn't stop me from volunteering, even while I was taking my doctoral classes. Mm -hmm. So I volunteered at the Good Shepherd Home, and that's another whole story all itself. So I was taught to care about people from my grandmother on, you know, care for the neighbors. My grandmother held a coffee clutch on Wednesdays every week. And this is what the bakery car sounded like. Da -doo, da -doo. <laughs> and then the bakery doors would open and mom would buy, grandma would buy the stuff. And then the women would come down to grandma's house for coffee clutch. And grandma gave me a little wine with sugar in it. You know why? <laughs> no. Put me to sleep. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> wine with sugar in it will put you to sleep very fast. <laughs> my goodness, Donna. I love hearing your stories. And 
when you think of the world of writing and authors, I think of you and I think of your biography on Raymond Roselip. Is that oh, maybe that's, one yeah. of the pieces that you are most proud of? I am, and I'm proud of Loris College because all along, and Jim Collins gets great credit for so much, and I give him feedback all the time on what a good orator he is. He speaks beautifully like an angel, okay? He allowed me to keep, and and so did the library personnel. I have to give them great credit, too, and to Joyce, particular, to, you know, the, the last mm-hmm. librarian there, mm-hmm. okay? I'm forgetting her last name. That's Joyce terrible. Meldrum. Meldrum, yes, okay. She allowed, she welcomed me there too. That biography took 13 years. It was completed in 215. I had started it long before then. I was given a sabbatical and I could go out to California to the hardcore archives. Laura supported me every step of the way uh, um, and let me keep that office, supported that office. I kept it until just two years ago. I finally left it. Mm-hmm. She, they, nobody pushed me out. And that's really great. People sometimes gave me a kick when I deserved it, but nobody pushed me out. <laughs> that's because you're part of our family, Donna. You're, you're always going to be part of the family, whether you have an office on campus or not. You are part of the fabric of this great school. I feel that when I walk onto the campus, I feel like I'm, I am at home. And, of course, COVID keeps me away from there, keeps me away from the library, keeps me from walking the campus. And I have had so many experiences meeting faculty, walking there, meeting with students. God, Nine Kane was like a home for me. That's where I taught for almost every year that I was at Loris, for all the 36 years that I was there. So I have nothing. I have many hard memories, you know, some. This is academic dean Jim Barda, okay? Mm-hmm. I said to him one time when I was giving him some tough stuff, and he looked at me and shaking his head a little bit, and I said, Jim, don't you want me to tell you the truth? He looked me straight in the eye and he said, no, Donna, not always. <laughs> <laughs> Monsignor Barda always had a great sense of humor. <laughs> yes, he, but he meant that. And you know, that's really true about life. People don't always want you to tell the truth. Well, we are and so... And I have learned over the years to temper the truth. <laughs> We are so privileged and glad that you told the truth with us during this interview. And we look forward to having you back on campus for events. I know you visit often for lectures and to catch up with people. We look forward to seeing you back on campus again. And and thank you so much for sharing your memories. Um, But mostly, thanks for your dedication to Loris for those 36 years. And the Bowerly Roselip Scholarship, too. I come back all the time when that those awards are given, because even to this day, um, that scholarship is given every year, last year to two young women, and I always take them out to Caroline's, and I will miss it this year if I can't, again, treat the people who are given that scholarship at the end of an academic year. Such the English impact. faculty choose they choose they choose the people to get it. Usually, I want it to be a student who's majored both in literature and writing, and sometimes it works out that way. But they're always outstanding students who get that scholarship. Absolutely, okay. you you continue even into retirement and beyond. You continue to have an impact on our students. So thank you, Donna, so very much. Okay, I can sense the little bell ringing in the background. <laughs> <laughs> and you are ever Thanks so to both perceptive. Of you. 
<laughs> Thanks, Bobby. Well, I can picture you, Bobby, because you always come at people with such an arms out flung, open face and, and body language saying, you're welcome, you're welcome here. You are one of the greatest representatives for Loris College. And Robert, if I knew you, I'd probably say the same thing to you. So uh, I thank you for all you've done, Bobby. We could never thank you quite enough, Bobby. You're a, a great person at Loris College in many, many ways. Wow, you're so sweet. The feeling is quite mutual. So thank you again for helping us to archive these wonderful memories. And I know so many people will enjoy listening to your wonderful words. Well, and Bobby, thank you for once again sitting in. And I was doing a tremendous job with the interviews and kind of bringing out all these great stories from, from all the people that we have joining us for the, the Duhawk Digest. It's such a treasure. We have so many amazing people who have walked the hill of Loris and their stories uh, will definitely inspire and bring back even more good thoughts from our alumni and friends. So thank you, Robert. Uh, and, and thank you to everyone who listened into our discussion. For more podcasts, as well as Loris news and features, be sure to visit the Loris Daily at daily.loris.edu. And while you're there, Feel free to click the bottom at the top of the website to, uh, to sign up for email updates. We hope you'll join us for the next Do Hawk Digest. And until then, take care of yourselves and each other, and go Do Hawks.